So this is a story that sounds exactly like what it tells us that it's about. It's pretty straightforward in a lot of ways. Do what you say you're going to do. And it reminds us that sometimes we don't follow through with what we said we're going to do. And it is that, but we also run the risk of minimizing or simplifying this to simply a moral teaching. This story happens at a very significant time, which adds to its purpose and why Matthew recorded it for us here. And the problem presented in the parable is about faithfulness and, and keeping our commitments to God and one another. And in fact, we just did that, didn't we? We just committed ourselves to nurturing and supporting two children in faith and in life for all these years to come after this day. This was the day that we made that commitment in their life. So indeed, this is important. It's important that we have integrity and that we do what we say we're going to do. But there's other trouble here to deal with. This is also about who's in charge. Who has authority? Jesus has been wielding some authority. Jesus is making people uncomfortable at this point in the story. The days before Jesus had gone into the temple, turned tables over, physically lashed out at those who were there, calling folks like who are his inquisitors today, calling them thieves and bandits for using God's house, a place meant for prayer for their own bidding and to serve their own purposes. Before that even, Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey with shouts of Hosanna and waving palms right under the noses of the powers of Jerusalem and Rome being called a king. He's entered the center, the epicenter of the religious elite on the outskirts of Roman rule. And he's being claimed by many as the new authority, the new king that will take charge soon. And his inquisitors today knew this. Jesus knew that this kind of thing would cause trouble. He had predicted his death here, you might recall. Because if he kept doing this kind of thing, it would lead to the cross. And once more, these folks had the power to see it happen. And they will very soon after this encounter plot and create the scheme for that cross that Jesus has told us about to be known. Maybe Jesus could get away with this out on the countryside. Maybe he could do this in the little country synagogues or on the banks of rivers and crops with those common fishermen and farmer types. Not here. Not in Jerusalem. Not in the courtyard of the temple. Not here, Jesus, he's told. So the stakes are high. The tensions are high. Now we know they're upset about Jesus' authority because that's what they come to him wondering about who gave you the right who gave you the authority to do these things like calling them thieves and turning over tables and accepting the fact that people are calling him a messiah but jesus continues to take his authority jesus does not answer this question he takes his authority in this moment and he asks did the baptism of john come from heaven or was it of human origin turns the tables on them. I'll answer your question if you answer mine, and this is the question he poses. Remember, John the Baptist had been murdered by Herod, and those with Jesus were here, then they definitely had a sympathetic heart for John. 
Jesus knew that he was putting those who came to him on the spot with this question. They knew that if they offended these folks by deed legitimizing John's ministry, they'd incite the crowds against them. But they also knew if they legitimized John, they undermined themselves. Neither was acceptable. So they refused to answer. And they say, we don't know. Fear. Fear is a powerful force for people in power. Fear can warp a leader's sense of courage. It can cause those in authority to compromise their own values because they fear they will lose sway, they will lose influence, they will lose votes with the people. They fear that the people will choose someone else. Rome used this kind of fear against Jerusalem authorities, and they knew what it meant if they acknowledged Jesus' authority. But Jesus refused to allow this fear to sway him. And he tells the parable that shows us the difference between earthly and heavenly authority. He tells them a parable about a father and two sons, as we have seen this morning and heard. One, he invites them both to go works in the vineyards, and he asks which of the two sons did right by their parents. One son is asked to work in the vineyard, and he says no, yet he does choose to work. The other is asked the same, and he says yes, but chooses not to go. And these, as Jesus asks, which of these two did the right thing? Now these scribes and these elites and these chief priests, they must have thought, well, this is a softball. This is bewildering. We are the good rule followers here. We're the pious. We're the religious elites. Surely he has a harder question than this for us. This is right in their wheelhouse. They were all about understanding following the rules and doing exactly what we're supposed to do. And I imagine them looking at each other saying, really, this is all he's got? So, of course, it's the one who did the work. And Jesus turns another table over. Because Jesus' authority was not focused merely on following the rules. Jesus' authority was about reconciling, redeeming, and grace and forgiveness. So he tells them that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, sinners in the minds of any good religious folk, they're going to enter the kingdom ahead of you. In short, you folks are being the second son in the story today because you have asked, been asked to redeem and reconcile and offer forgiveness in God's vineyards, but you refuse this work. Instead, you sound religious, you look important, you take charge, but you're failing to wield the power that you've been given to help. It's a harsh judgment. Cynthia Kittredge writes that both tax collectors and prostitutes engage in professions that the establishment deems dishonorable. They're illegitimate workers as opposed to the legitimate workers who were portrayed as the father's two sons. And while the sons can agree to work and refuse or change their minds, there are those in the world who, well, they work to survive. They work because there are little other options been given to them. Poverty and desperation likely made this work not a lifestyle option, but a necessity. Tax collectors played a role in an exploitive system. 
but not, they did not have control of that system themselves. In other words, where the religious elite wanted to show others that such people lived opposed to the rules, that such people need to be rejected or avoided or don't be like them, Jesus came showing up having dinner with them. Jesus came inviting himself to their own houses for dinner. He came to dine with folks who lived within a system that left them with little to do but survive. In fact, Jesus called a tax collector, the very disciple for which we attribute today's gospel being written by, to follow him, named Matthew. Jesus' authority tells us that we're earthly authority called sinners and criminals, those whom were despised. Heavenly authority shows up seeking to understand and redeem and here saying to them, here are the kingdoms of heaven. You are beloved child of God. This authority meant to forgive and to change lives, not to punish or shame or reject. David Lewicki wrote that we are often a group of people in the church who can be tempted to press one thing and do another. Chief among sinners, I have fallen into that trap myself. Sometimes we serve our own needs first, and we serve others with what we have left over. And the urgent, the edgy grace of the Jesus community fades into a warm place to belong. He writes that a warm gathering of second sons is really a pleasant place to be, but it's just not the kingdom of God. The Christian life always carries with it a tension, a tension between grace and judgment, rules and faith, right and wrong. We consistently and persistently feel this tension. It stands between our need to repent and to be renewed and we're always asking if we're seeking to redeem and reconcile our wrongs or if we're just trying to prove that we're, we're not so bad. Or maybe we're at least not that bad. And when we persistently point out the mistakes that others make and use them to make ourselves feel a little bit better about ourselves, we've only succeeded in sounding like every person who ever criticized Jesus for the company he kept. I believe the church is meant to be a place like a hospital. We are meant to be those who are coming to seek healing and wholeness, not a club that basks in the warmth of how well we're doing. Today's story is a moment of grace. And I believe it is here to offer you and I a moment, you and me a moment, to check ourselves. It asks us to remember that Jesus has given us the task. Jesus is sending us to a vineyard with the authority to forgive and to change lives. We're empowered by the Spirit to do that. So children of God, will we go into the vineyards to work? Will you, my children, Jesus asks, go into the world where there are those who are addicted and scheming and doing whatever it takes to survive, even if it means breaking the rules of heaven and earth? And will we show them that they are valued by God? Will we go where there is crime and racism and poverty and human trafficking and violence with the love of God to bring about change? Will we go into the prisons? Will we go to the streets? Will we go wherever anyone is called something less than a child of God? Will you go? 
for seven years before I moved here, I was a restorative justice facilitator. And in this work, I worked with the court systems, and I worked with juveniles who had been charged with crimes, and I would have them sit down with those they had done harm with. And my job was to, to bring about healing, to, to have a conversation. The premise of this work was to uh, give an opportunity for those who have done harm to take responsibility, to learn from it, and to make things as right as possible after the harm was done. Completely voluntary. Everyone had the authority to, uh, to participate or not. And if all agreed, then the charges would be dropped. And once the agreement to make things right was fulfilled, the idea being that the community and relationships can be healed. Now, I could talk about that work for hours, so ask me sometime, but be sure you sit down with me. But over those seven years, I learned a lot about what grace and forgiveness look like lived out. I can tell you that over seven years, I never met a single person who did not want to help a young person learn from their mistakes. Not one. I'll also tell you this work helped shape my understanding of what grace looks like because it looks like a family sitting down together to talk about things when they go wrong or south and trying to find a way to live together again. That's what grace is. There's always one case that I like to share, and I want to share that with you today. So I get, got a police report, and what happened, a young man had walked into a restaurant. He had picked up a, a piece of origami that made out of a $5 bill, and he ran out of the store. The owner chased him all the way home, which is about a half a mile away. He called the police, had him arrested, and he was charged with taking a $5 piece of origami. And that was about all I knew. I must confess, I did not want to waste time on this meeting. I felt like I was wasting my time. I felt like the man charged was overreacting. I assumed the officer had better things to do. Why not just talk to the parent? Heck, make another piece of origami, I thought. But as always, I met with each of the persons separately. And it was difficult because not knowing the owner restaurant, um, he also didn't speak very good English. And so I didn't know if he knew what we were trying to do. And as I recall, his daughter tried to translate for us. And I met with a teenager and his mother, and he was painfully quiet, as teenagers can be. And mom was very upset that he had been charged with such a crime as theft or such a small thing. And by the time I left, I realized I agreed with her. He had simply taken a dare from a friend and followed through with it. Anyway, the day came to me. And we met in the restaurant where the crime took place. And I was not confident that things would go well, but the owner met us at the door. And he kind of took charge of the moment. I was supposed to be in charge. I had the authority here, I thought. So I felt a little of my authority was being taken away, but he allowed, I allowed him to go forward, allowed. But he took us to a round table all the way in the back of the restaurant. There was 100 tables between us and that, and I wondered why not sit down at one of these, and because we usually have folks sit across from one another. But he took us to the round table, restaurant wasn't open yet. But it was here that I began to learn that there are always more behind the reports. There's always more behind the facts to learn. Before we began to sit down, the owner must have been practicing what he was going to say because he was so clear in everything he said, much different than my experience before. He continued to lead us. He took authority of the moment. And in his rehearsed English, he said, 
I'm sitting us at a round table because in my culture, when a family needs to have a serious conversation, we sit at a round table. At a round table, no one is the head of the table. At a round table, we see each other equally. I want us to see each other equally today. He invited us to sit down. He sat down and he began to speak. He said, I want you to know, talking to the young man, I've been robbed 14 times, seven of them at gunpoint. He pulled out a piece of, a box of medicine, put it on the table and said, these are sleeping pills. I take these every night because I don't sleep well because I'm always afraid. My daughter works here and I didn't know what your intentions were the day you came into my store. That's why I was so upset. That's why I was so angry with you. Then he said, I don't care about the thing you stole. I want you to understand why I was so upset. And then he turned to me, the gentleman did. He says, please don't charge him with a crime. I just want him to know, I just want to know that he's not going to do this again. And I want him to learn something from this. And I told them, well, our purpose is not to punish. So let's start talking about what we can do to make things right. And at that moment, the owner of a restaurant brought us all food. We broke bread together. And we talked about what it looks like to make things right after the world's broken. Church, we are to be that round table in the world. We are to be a place of grace and forgiveness where none of us hold authority over one another other than the grace that holds authority over us. We are to recognize that Christ is the authority who wants to rule our hearts, guide our missions, define our relationships, and help us to put others ahead of ourselves. You see, Jesus didn't say that the chief priests and elders to them that the others would go instead of them. He simply said they're going to go ahead of you. So may we take our authority, church, and use it for grace and forgiveness, always putting others ahead of ourselves, but for the good of us all. Thanks be to God. Amen.